So I, I, as I begin this message, I, this is maybe the last message on Romans 1, 16 to 17. I've talked about these passages over several messages. I think this is our third one because as I've said to you guys before, these are really flagship verses for the entire book. I've said before, these passages in 16 and 17 could be the subtitle of this book. If it said Romans, underneath it would say the gospel of God's salvation through the righteousness of God um, in Christ. And so every word in this, in these verses, every phrase deserves a lot of attention and care. Here's the dilemma I fear as I begin this message. I, I fear for you. Um, you've heard all these words before. We sing these words, we talk about these words, you know all these concepts to some degree. And these words can wash over you like a breeze on a summer day that you, you know, don't barely notice as you walk to your car from a coffee shop. They're the air we breathe in church. Um, and so what I'm concerned is that, that we just get numb to these ideas in these terms. And as, as um, Katie spoke about the Libyan Christian uh, Islam, she said that Jesus is like oxygen to her and that she, she can't breathe with ox, without oxygen. So she can't give up Jesus because for her, what's really up close and center in her heart is that she just needs him. And he's good for her. He is life for her. And she feels that in her bones. And that's why she is living in a country that will persecute her, but she's not willing to give him up. And that's what these words are meant to be for us. These concepts, these phrases I'm going to preach to you guys about that you've heard a million times if you're a church Christian, they're supposed to function as oxygen to our souls. And much of the time, they just don't. And I'm not condemning you for that. They don't for me. It takes the Holy Spirit to really work through these words to make them oxygen. But they are oxygen for our souls. So I want to ask you to position yourself on an amazing day that you would rather be out in than stuck in this room with half light, you know, and say to your hearts, Lord, your word is, is worth paying attention to. And I do, t I, I will tell you, I'm going to try to explain his word by his grace and not simply my ideas. And so to remind yourself, your word is, paying is worth paying attention to. These words are life. The things I'm going to say to you today, we're going to talk about today, we've talked about before, but let me say, there's nothing more important I could say to you than these things. There's nothing more important that you could think about in the universe than these things. These things are eternal life and eternal death. The ideas and the concepts we're going to talk about today, there's nothing more important in the universe than to consider these things. So it's 11.15. You guys want to get to Father's Day stuff. It is probably the first or second most beautiful day of your lives outside. And you're in here. And I apologize that we can't have our seats out in the parking lot. <laughs> but these words are worth it. These words are worth it. So let me pray and ask 
God to please, by his grace, make me clear enough through his spirit and make your hearts open enough that we might receive oxygen and really can, can really be able to tell that it's oxygen. Oh God, would you through your Holy Spirit make these words life to us. Lord, they are life. Would you through your Holy Spirit make them life? God, I cannot do it. And I'm not worthy in myself of you answering the prayer, Lord. I have all kinds of wickedness and sin in my heart that wants attention and praise despite you. But Lord, my new man wants you glorified and wants your people fed. So please, would you, Lord, from my new man, hear my cry and hear our cry that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today is our communion Sunday and I thought it would be good to, to really take this communion Sunday to recap where we've been and, and to kind of um, seal the deal on 16 and 17. Particularly, I want to I want to go over what we've been talking about the last three weeks, and I want to highlight something we haven't highlighted as much, which is the role of faith, the role of our faith in receiving God's salvation. So our, our verses are sixteen and seventeen from chapter one, as they've been for several weeks. There, Paul says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, but the one who is righteous by faith shall live. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you about the reason why these verses are here. The reason why these verses are here is because God loves the world deeply and is very angry with the world. He loves the world deeply and he is very angry with the world. And we're comfortable with the first idea that he loves the world deeply. But we understand that the second idea, God's just anger at the world, very little. Even if we're believers, we typically understand it very little. And those who don't believe at all, they reject this idea altogether. It just sounds so hostile to them and oppressive to them and foreign to them. But this is the testimony of God's word. The very next verse, the very next breath out of Paul's mouth will be, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And Paul is really concerned that all people understand that God is angry at the world, which is unsettling, right? It's unsettling to you as you hear those words from me. It's unsettling for me as I say those words. I want to say that God loves you, full stop. I want to stop there and get cozy and comfortable with that because it's glorious and true, but it's it's useless without looking at God straight in the face and really listening to all he has to say to us. Because for the next two chapters, Paul is going to deal with, from the Holy Spirit, why God is angry against all of humanity and what effect that anger is having on humanity that we can already see with our eyes and even more concerning what effect that anger will have on humanity. Paul will contend that all mankind, 
rich and poor, black and white, religious, non-religious, no matter what you believe about sexuality or immigration or the environment or Biden or Trump, we are all of us separated from God by our sin apart from Jesus Christ's work on our behalf and that we are in humanity on this world currently suffering the effects of his wrath in the depravity of man, in the disease and death, disorder and futility that we see all around us and that we are destined for a future just judgment that will end in our eternal death. This is the really bad news that verse 18 starts with and continues till almost to the end of chapter three. But that really bad news is what necessitates the incredibly good news that we're looking at today in verses 16 and 17. See, Paul isn't delving into the bad news so we can be left there depressed and hopeless. He is delving into the bad news so that the eyes of our hearts are opened so that we can see our need for the good news. So that we can see the remedy for what he calls God's just and righteous wrath at mankind. So that we can cherish this remedy for ourselves and not take it for granted. Like a summer breeze, we pay, barely pay any attention to as we walk to our car out of a coffee shop. No, he wants it to be oxygen for us. And he wants us to grow in our desire to share it with whoever we can so that they can experience the remedy that God wants all people to have. So he tries to say, listen, this water I have for you, this 4,000 gallon tank of water with a 4,000 pounds of pressure fire hose, I'm giving it to you because your house is on fire and you're blind to it. But if you would just see your house is on fire, this would mean something to you. This fire truck and all this water and all this saving liquid. That's what he's trying to do in chapters one and two and three. And last week, what I told you was that before we submerse ourselves into the ocean depths of chapters one, two, and three that survey this predicament, this terrible predicament, I I wanted to unpack with Paul this this quick survey he does, this drive-by he does of the gospel of the revelation of God in 16 and 17, these verses today. He takes a pause before he, remember we talked about this if you were here last year, before he goes into the ocean depths of the wreckage of the USS humanity, he takes a pause to help us put on the gear we need to survey that, and that gear is the gospel. And Paul calls the core of the gospel this thing, this phrase, this Strange phrase, the revelation of the righteousness of God. That's what's at the core of the gospel. The revelation, the revealing of God's righteousness. And in in last week's message, I tried to answer the question, what is, what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Because when we hear it with our ears, we just think of God's character. He's a just God. But that wouldn't be good news for us if we're sinners. That would just assure our guilt and our condemnation before him. So I tried to explain by surveying the Old Testament that Paul's got much more in mind when he uses that phrase, the righteousness of God, than simply God is just. That, That what Paul means by the righteousness of God is the revelation of God's way of saving us from our sin 
that is just for him and yet still saves us. The revelation of God's justice to save us. This is at the core of the gospel. And and here's why God's righteousness or God's justice has to be at the core of the gospel. Here's why. Listen, God has a great dilemma. He has a great dilemma. He's got an incredible problem. He is justly angry at humanity for their sin. And he has righteous, real wrath against sinners for their sin. And at the same time, who is God? If you had to say from the Bible, one of the popular phrases, God is one word. God is, no. God is, no. What does 1 John say? God is love. Now God is holy. He is just, he is righteous, but that's why he's angry. But the dilemma comes because God himself is love. So the question that God has to answer and that he has to answer because he's just in front of the whole universe is how does a God of justice continue to be just if he doesn't punish sinners with his wrath? How does a God of eternal justice continue to be just if he doesn't punish sinners? Because if he doesn't punish them, he will be unrighteous. Some DA in California or attorney general, I'm not going to get into the dregs of the politics. I just know that he just got thrown out in a recall because the community around him said, you aren't punishing the criminals. And the victims are suffering trauma and justice is not being done. They don't hate people. They're saying justice is not being done. You're an unrighteous attorney general. They threw him out last week. I barely know any more about it than that. So please, I'm not going to dip into the the swamp of politics. But I'm just saying we all get that sense. If somebody gets off scot-free for something that's really terrible, it hurts people and wounds people, we're aghast, right? And God is too. He's a righteous God and he will protect his righteousness. So that's his dilemma. As the God of love, he longs to be merciful and save sinners from his own justice. But if he does this, how will he do it and still be just? How will he show that he is righteous and still save those who deserve his punishment? And God resolves the great dilemma in the gospel. As Roman 3 unpacked, we went there last week. We tried to answer this question. What does God mean by the righteousness of God? We tried to resolve it, at least initially, because Romans will go on and on and on about it in later chapters. But we tried to resolve it, at least initially, with what Romans 3 tells us. And there it says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Therefore, and you had it right. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. His point is, God telling us what's righteous and holy doesn't do anything to change our hearts. If he commands us to love us with all, if he commands us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we don't, all the commandment has done is highlighted our sin and revealed it to him and revealed it to us. So Paul will make the point, and we'll look at it further. God's commandments cannot save us. 
they actually, actually invite us because of our sinful nature to rebel. And they actually reveal our sin. And so Paul says there's no way to be right through the law. So God has to find another way to make us right. He has to find another way to pardon us, to take away his condemnation from us. And that's what Romans 21 says, verse 21 says, but now apart from the law, apart from his commandments, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And what Paul means is this way of making us right with God has been talked about in the Old Testament. He's going to talk about that later in chapter four a lot. But let's look at 23 because this is where things start to really get, 22 and forward, this is where things start to really get wonderful. Here's the remedy. The righteousness of God, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. God is going to give whoever will come to him for it in faith, a righteous standing before him through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 22, half B, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We'll talk more about what that means in later weeks. For all have sinned, black, white, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, communist, capitalist, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You want to know what we were supposed to be? Look at Jesus Christ. We were made in the image of Jesus Ecclesiastes says that man was made in the garden upright in his heart and we rejected God and lost, lost that image bearing beauty and lost our ability to commune with God that we originally had. And, and yet verse 24 says, all are declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Next verse. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Why did God do this? Well, obviously he did it because he wants to save us and because he needs to demonstrate his justice. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. I talked about this last week a little bit. Remember, I, I brought up Abraham. Abraham believed God's promise. And Genesis 15 says that God, when Abraham believed God's promise to him, he's, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless the entire world through you. And it says that when God believed that promise, when Abraham believed that promise, God declared Abraham righteous. He credited righteousness to his account. Abraham wasn't righteous in himself. But God said, Abraham, because you believe me, you're depending on my promise, I'm going to declare you righteous in my sight. And the whole universe, angels and demons, witnessed that moment. And they could have all said, and maybe many of them did say, how can you do this? Abraham isn't righteous in himself. He's a sinner. You're supposed to uphold justice in the universe. All that man did was believe your promise. You said some wonderful things to him about what you would do for him. And he just believed you. 
Look at the way he treats his wife. How can you declare him righteous in your sight? And God said, good question. Wait about 1,800 years and I'll make it plain. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 25b. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, in his mercy, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Abraham never paid for his own sins. All the stuff he put Sarah through, all the moon worshiping he did as a kid, and all the other countless things he probably did that were wrong, he never got punished for them. He never got punished for them. And so the universe waited 1,500 years, 1,800 years to ask the question, how come he got scot-free? What are all these people doing in heaven? And God said, well, I will show you. I will show you. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Now I'm showing you, God says, so as to be righteous and also the one who declares righteous those who have faith in Jesus. Do you see how concerned God is about his justice? We live in a world that's outraged at injustice. Some of it's real, some of it's not real, you know, depending on where you are, but we live in an age of outrage about injustice. God is way more outraged at injustice than we are. We can, I think we can barely comprehend it. He is keeping score in a way that would make all of us very uncomfortable. He knows what you're doing at work with your time and whether you're serving your employees or not. He knows how you're talking to your wife. He knows how I'm talking to my kids. He knows all these ways that I fail to love him and fail to love my neighbor as myself. And it matters to him. I want to think it doesn't matter. He's going to gloss it over. He's not going to gloss it over. Any of it. But in the gospel... He resolves it without destroying sinners, but making a way for them. In the gospel, God has acted so that he's able to declare us righteous in his courtroom and still maintain his own righteousness as a just God. And that's why the gospel is the good news of God's righteousness revealed. The gospel shows that God is indeed righteous, even in the giving of his people a verdict of righteous, of not guilty. And how does he do it? God does this by becoming a man. God himself does it by becoming a man in his very own son and taking on all our wrongdoing upon himself and then bearing the punishment for all of our sins on the cross. He enters a world that he knows will reject him. He enters a world that he knows will eventually hate him, that will crucify him. And in that crucifixion, in a way that we don't fully understand, God will execute justice through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, God is able to acquit you, to declare you not guilty in his courtroom. 
And he's able to do this justly because Jesus has justly been punished for us. He is able to declare us no longer condemned by those sins, but instead he gives you a verdict earned by his son of righteous in his courtroom. Through no merit of your own or my own, God gives you an absolutely ironclad righteous standing at the bar of eternal justice. I repeat, this is not a righteousness you have earned but that Jesus Christ through his blood has earned for you. You would have no reconciliation with the God of the universe without this resolution. And most of the world does not understand this. They look at the blue sky, they look at, especially in the West, they look at the beautiful cars we drive. They look at the good job they have. They look at, and they think, I must be doing pretty good. I've solved the life question. I know how to make it all work for myself. And they look at it all and they say, the universe must be okay with me if they give it to any thought at all. And God says, no, I'm being patient with you I'm giving you time. I'm giving believers around you time to share the news with you. And I'm giving you time to recognize I am a God of justice and you need to come to me for help. And here's the help. For those who will come to Jesus and put their dependence not on themselves, but on him in the courtroom of his justice and in the trial of their lives, they will recognize that they need a savior. Here's what he will do. He takes all your unrighteousness on himself and is punished for all of your unrighteousness. And now the only verdict left for you, if he's taken all of your unrighteousness before God's courtroom is what? Blameless. Innocent. Righteous in Christ. The believer comes before the judge of the universe. The judge sees the sins of the believer in thought and word and deed and all he or she has done that is unrighteous and all he or she has failed to do. And remember, as we talked about last week, we, we can't put God in our debt. And we, we, we do that sometimes in our mind. Could you imagine a husband committing adultery on his wife and she brings him before the judge to sue for divorce and she has biblical grounds and they're standing before the judge and she says, he's committed adultery against me intentionally. He's had this affair with this woman for months and I'm suing for divorce and for you know, whatever percentage of the income and property and child support. And the man says, your honor, I object. I've been married for seven years. My affair lasted three months. 
What about the six years? <laughs> what about the six years and nine months that I was faithful? That far outweighs my adulterous three months. I actually deserve credit in the courtroom. I was faithful for almost the whole marriage. And the judge says, what? You're, you were just doing your job and probably pretty poorly for those six years, buddy. The last three months, you just, pl you know, plain out set yourself on fire. You don't get points for doing your job. And that is, that is the situation with God. When we love God with all our heart and we love our neighbor as yourself, we're just doing what we were supposed to do. We were doing what in Adam we were created to do as a human race. We can't put God in our debt. But the judge holds that gavel of eternal weight. He looks at all of that sin. And while he could slam it down and say, away from me, you have forfeited your life. You've sinned against my grace and merited death. Which is what God says that humankind deserves. And all of heaven and all of hell would say about that verdict just. And, and let me say again, just because I, I know this is a very delicate issue. God's punishment will be precise. I said this, I think last week or two weeks ago. I want to say it again. God's punishment will be precise. Remember Jesus' words in the Gospels. He who knows his master's will and doesn't do it will be guilty of many lashes. He who does not know his master's will and doesn't do it will receive few lashes. And we could look at other scriptures. I just want to make the point that God's eternal punishment is not one size fits all for everybody. But here's what it is for everybody. It's sad. It's bad. It is eternal death. And so all of heaven and hell would agree with the verdict over our lives. You've not loved God and your neighbor as you should have. And you forfeited your life. But instead, the judge with the gavel lifted up, he puts it away. Puts it behind his back. He steps off the bench. He comes down to where you stand before him in fear. And he puts his arm around you. And he says, listen, I'm going to take all of your unrighteous deeds and all of the righteous deeds you were supposed to do that you didn't do. I'm going to take it all. I'm going to take all your sins onto myself and I'm going to be punished for those sins. Will you receive that gift from me? Will you depend on that? It's a free gift. Can I give that to you? Will you receive it? You really need it. And dying for those sins and rising again, the judge comes out of the grave and he says to the believer, your sin debt is paid in full. It's all paid. You don't stand unrighteous before me any longer. There's not a spot on you anymore. Yeah, I know you still struggle with sin, but this record, this criminal record in my file of your whole life, from birth to death, I took it. I paid for it all. There's nothing here anymore for you. 
I don't want you to sin tomorrow, but you're probably going to sin tomorrow. It's not going to be on your record. I don't want you to sin next year. You're probably going to sin next year and the year after. I don't want you to do that. Let's work on those sins. But it's not going to be an issue in my courtroom. Not an issue in my courtroom. It's an issue of our friendship and our familyhood. You are righteous in my sight. Another word that we use often when we talk about what it means to be declared righteous in God's sight is this word justified. Justification, justified. Righteous in his sight, declared righteous in his courtroom, justified, they're the same concept, same terms. To be justified by God means to be given a verdict of righteous by God over you for all eternity. And if you're interested in knowing more, I can talk to you about the Greek words, the Greek roots, because justice and righteousness, they are the same word grouping. So we'll see declare righteous. Sometimes we'll see justified. We'll see just. We'll see righteous. They're the same words in Greek to a large degree. So when someone says the believer stands justified in Christ, when someone says the believer stands justified in Christ, we could ask, what do you mean? Justified in Christ? Justified concerning what? Like, what's that mean, justified? I I might say, um, I'm up here preaching. I'm justified to preach because I I went to seminary and I studied really hard on this sermon. You know, I'm not saying I should say that. I'm just saying, because plenty of people can preach who haven't been in seminary. But you might say, I'm justified to drive this car because I got the title deed right here. And I'm justified to drive it in Maryland because I got a license right here. It says I can do it. Right? Or you might pick up your kid from CM and you have the little name tag or whatever. You say, I'm justified to pick up Matthew because I'm his dad and this card proves it. Right? And that's the idea. That's the idea of justified. It means you have a right to this. We are justified in being saved. Our salvation is just before God. Our being saved from God's condemnation, being forgiven by him, being reconciled to him, being the gift of his, of, of his companionship and his peace and his love and his kindness and his mercy, following us all of our days, despite our indifference to it, despite our sinning against to it, it keeps following us forever and ever and ever. All that is justified in the court of God's justice. Why? Because Jesus has paid for all of our sins and all of our rebellion and all of our indifference to him. He's paid for it all. Most of which we barely understand and barely see. He's paid for it all. We are justified to receive all these things we shouldn't receive, not because of ourselves, not through our own righteousness, but through the righteous declaration God gives to us because Jesus has purchased this declaration for us by wiping away all of our sins by his blood. And listen, I'm about to move on from this to its application, but I want to beg you, if anyone in this room does not understand this, I beg you, I don't want to play games with you. I don't want to play games with God. I beg you, don't leave this church today without saying to me, can we talk about this sometime? Because I don't get this. This is the message that saves This is the message that must be believed to be reconciled to God. I didn't set up the system. He did. And we can't play church with this, folks. This is why I started as I did by saying, please don't be asleep to this. Please may God make it oxygen to us because this is eternal life and death. If you don't understand this, there is no more important conversation you can have in the universe ever 
ever, 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 then what does it mean to be justified, declared righteous by the blood of Christ? So please don't go home today and be like, oh, that was a lot of weird words. I'm going home. Please just say, hey, we get a cup of coffee? I will totally get a cup of coffee with you as long as I don't get hit by a car or something. <laughs> I've always got to make those Lord willing provisions. It would be my honor and my pleasure to get a cup of coffee. I've never met you before today. I would love to do it. I've known you for 15 years and, you know, we served in the army together and I thought you were a Christian. You're like, I don't get it. Let's get coffee out of here. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Now, I want to spend the rest of my remarks and get them to them quicker than I've written them. Oh, I don't think I can do this to you. I can't do this to you. I'm not going to spend the rest of my remarks on this because it's, it's time to, to land the plane here. Mike Steele, you'd be so proud of me, buddy. <laughs> um, let me just say very quickly. <sighs> Lord, help me. Paul says in verse 16 that this righteous declaration, this justification, do you all know what I mean by this righteous declaration over your life? This justification, it comes through faith. He says it comes to those who believe God for it. In verse 17, he uses this curious phrase, from faith to faith. You can see at the end of verse 16. Wait, 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 where is it? Yeah, yeah, 17. Go back one more, buddy. Thank you, Kale. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I'm going to hone on that one. What, what does he mean from faith to faith? I don't get that. I didn't get that. So I studied it, and now I think I got it. So I want to tell you what I think it means. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says this. He's talking about sharing the gospel with people. He's a representative of the gospel, and he's sharing it with people. And here's what he says about what happens when he shares the gospel with people. He says two things happen. Two things happen. Next verse, he says, when I share the gospel with people, two things happen. Same things that happens to you when you try to share the gospel with people. Next slide. Next slide. Next one. Yeah, there it is. Here's what he says about his gospel sharing activity. He says, my gospel is like the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Everybody, when they get around the gospel, they have this inner sense that God is near. And to, to some of them, it's a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, it's a fragrance from life to life. Remember he said faith to faith? Up here he's saying death to death, life to life. What's he doing? What Paul is saying is that when I bring the gospel near someone who does not want God, it smells like death to them. Do you remember that? I remember that. I remember being a ninth grader and hearing about Jesus freaks and just being like, what a bunch of weirdos. And somebody just start getting religious talk on me. I'd be like, oh, don't smother all your Jesus stuff on me. It's like, ugh, ugh. Sing these songs. Praise the Lord. Oh, barf. Couldn't stand it. Couldn't imagine it. Couldn't understand it. It was, it was gross to me. It was death to me. And what it, what's Paul saying is it, it's confirming your spiritual death. And unless God gives you the ability to see that for what it really is, you are destined to experience an eternal death to come. It feels like death to you right now. It's going to lead, that, that, that reaction in it, it's going to lead to your death spiritually later on. 
So death now, future death more later. Conversely, when the gospel comes to someone who recognizes it for what it is, that it is God giving the gift of eternal life to those who don't deserve it, they sense life in it. And, and because they sense life in it, they receive it, and it just leads to more and more life. It leads to more and more life. They sense it comes from God, and because they sense this, they find joy in it, they, and they pr- push into it more because his power is now working in them, and they get more and more life. So that initial taste of life leads to more and more life, ultimately to eternal life. So we might take Paul here as meaning that if we come back, what does faith to faith mean? It means that the good news of the righteousness of God is given as a gift through Jesus. And when it comes to your heart and is met with faith, when you meet it with real faith, it leads to more and more faith and more and more hope and more and more and more and more. You see the righteousness of God in the gospel. You see it for you. You see it saving you. you. You put your hope in it at first, but something about that initial deposit causes you to keep putting your hope in it, keep depending on it. Instead of your faith dying, real saving faith lasts. Instead of you running away from God and becoming cold to God and indifferent to God and giving up on God, real saving faith causes you to keep coming back to him, keep depending on him, keep holding on to him. Faith leading to more faith, leading to more faith, leading to more faith. I believe what Paul is saying here is saving faith lasts. It endures. We could look at many other scriptures that explain this, but we're not. I just want to close with this. The blossom of new life that we receive in the gospel it must be rested in and nourished and cherished over and over again. We must, we must plant our spiritual lives in such a way that they, they're constantly being nourished by the soil of this beautiful gospel. That we're listening to the truth of this beautiful gospel again and again and again, coming back to it again. We have to keep coming back to this truth that God has declared you righteous in Christ, not in yourself. You have to keep holding on to that for the rest of your life. That is the soil that everything else grows in. You have to keep coming back to the cross and what Jesus has done for you. John Piper says it this way, the gospel, and please hang on guys, this is really the end of our message. We're about to take communion. You've been really good. It's been a long morning. But, but just give me your ears for another couple of minutes. The gospel. This news of how God makes us right with himself. And does it without destroying his own righteousness. This gospel is the power of God to save believers. Because in the gospel... We can see revealed every day that our standing with God is not based on our own righteousness, but on God's righteousness freely given to us by faith. And when we see that over and over in the message of the gospel, 
day after day, as long as we live, our faith is renewed and sustained and we press on in the fight. Our confidence that God will help us in this life and save us from the wrath to come is based on our ever-renewed, enduring assurance that our acceptance with him is based on the gift of his own righteousness and not ours. So every time the Bible demands that you do something, which it does a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, do not think, I must do this to take away my guilt or I must do this to get forgiveness, or I must do this to get a right standing with God. Do not think that. Instead, think, I will do this because my guilt is already removed. I am already forgiven. I already have the gift of God's righteousness. And so I know that God is for me and will help me. We must continue to hold on to the truth. We must continue to hold on to the good news. We have to stay near to it and keep reminding ourselves of it and keep reminding each other of it. You know, there is only one ritual. God created a people, the Jewish people, and he gave them many rituals, many ceremonies, many rites, many practices, religious rites, practices, and rituals. Do you know there's only one that he gave us to do over and over and over and over and over again. We're baptized once. We don't do bar mitzvahs. We're not called to repeat Jewish feasts or new moons or Passovers or go through the contours of Ramadan. The Christian has one and only one ritual. Because the Christian has one thing above all things that he or she must come back to again and again and again. The body and blood of Christ given over to death for your righteous standing before Paul. We are, Paul says, justified before him, declared righteous by his blood. Above everything else we do in the Christian life, we must hold fast to this promise of justification and salvation through the blood of Jesus. Jesus knows we are prone to forget it, we're prone to be indifferent to it, and we are vulnerable even to give it up. The battle against sin is often discouraging. The temptation to condemn ourselves and live in that condemnation or to exonerate ourselves by our performance and live in that sense of self-righteousness is deeply ingrained in us. And so Jesus says, no, 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 come back to this. Remember me. Remember my body given for you. Remember my blood poured out for you. In remembering me, there is salvation, power, will flow through your life as you come back to this again and again. Power will come through your life. What did Jesus say in John 7? He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me in particular, in the gospel of what I've done for them on that cross, 
He says what? From within their innermost being will flow living water. Spiritual life, spiritual power, spiritual fruit through the Holy Spirit coming through faith in this gospel of his son. And so Jesus says this morning to you and I, remember me, remember me, remember my body given for you. Yes, yes, we want to walk holy. We want to fight God's, we want to fight God's battle. We want to fight our sin. Come to, come to him for help to do that. He purchased that help for you too. Will you believe him for it? He purchased that help for you too. But as you fight, don't depend on your success in fighting. Depend on my blood, he says over and over again. Depend on my sufficient sacrifice, which takes away all your sin, all your unrighteousness in my father's court. 